According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always. Where else would our growth come from? But turn, turn with me, if you would, in the Word of God, in the book of Deuteronomy. This is day 77 in the Through the Bible reading calendar, and we are now prepared for Deuteronomy chapter 13, 14, 15, and about half of ver- chapter 16. So we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. It's also Wednesday night, which means we take a few uh, minutes for questions and answers. Before we do any of that, though, we want to make sure that we're in fellowship, that, we, that our time is redeemed for the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment of silent prayer to prepare our hearts for the truth of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness. And uh, Father, you have manifest your faithfulness uh, again and again and again throughout this Through the Bible series. I want to thank you for uh, just an abundant study day today. And now, Father, as we assemble for teaching, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to bless our time together as well. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So we want to make sure we have a microphone ready to go for the uh, the live studio audience here that we can run around the room. And I just checked my emails, and I don't believe I have any old business pending, anything from email. So if uh, if there had been something earlier, I have failed to uh, to get it copied across from my email to my um, question and answer file. But the last thing on my Q and A file was the one from a week ago when Lance and Glenda Bingley had emailed about the uh, the post-flood Nephilim. So I think we're, we're caught up to date and current on that. We're ready for any new questions that may come up. We'll start right there. Pastor Bob, for new believers, what are the basic doctrines you believe a new believer should learn in the first one, two, three months? That's an outstanding question. And we happen to have a basic doctrinal studies notebook. Uh, it's on the wall in the hallway out there. It's also on the website. Um, so everything that's in that notebook. Uh, but essentially um, what I like to do, first thing, I like to teach confession of sin. I like to teach how to stay in fellowship, how to keep short accounts, the basics of spirituality versus uh, carnality. Because uh, if you don't teach that right off the bat, then this baby believer is never going to grow. They're going to spend their whole time carnal and mad at the world and everything. So I start with uh, with confession of sin and basic spirituality and then walk through the different categories. I also like to teach, um, not every pastor puts spiritual gifts in the realm of basics, but I do. Because the, the day they get saved from that very moment, they've got a gift and it doesn't hurt to start praying about it and asking the Lord to, to reveal it. So I put charismatology in there. I put um, uh, just so many things that apply to the, to the church age and you'll see the categories that are there. Let me um, remind myself, Basic Doctrinal Studies by Bolander. There we go. So bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible, theology, the doctrine of God, basically his essence and his uh, being in Trinity, anthropology, the doctrine of man, that's huge. 
study of the essence, lost estate, and eternal purpose. Soteriology. You say, well, they're already saved. Why do they need soteriology? Because they're saved. Now they need to have the, the foundation. And what does that mean? All the positional truth doctrines that come with being saved. Peripatology, the doctrine of the Christian walk, how to confess your sins and stay in fellowship, uh, the priesthood function of prayer, thelematology on the will of God, agonology, the doctrine of the struggle, boulology, the plan of God, ecclesiology, the doctrine of this church, and charismatology, the doctrine of spiritual gifts. So that's what I include in that. All right, excellent question. We have another question across the aisle. If we can bring the microphone over there. Actually, just an add-on for the New Grace Notes students. Warren doesn't have it in the curriculum, but, I mean, the course is available. I generally send an, a new student the, the salvation course. Mm-hmm. I don't know, in a lot of cases, I don't know when they got saved, but if they've been saved a long time and they're in prison, it means something didn't stick in their heads. Right. And, uh, so I send this salvation course because everyone should know how they got saved mm-hmm. and know how to tell other people, which is part of what you said, but I just thought I'd add that in. No, no, that's right. And that goes very well in the Grace Notes curriculum. It's uh, Those salvation doctrines do uh, get put, I think, in Doctrine 100. I think they're in the first 10 doctrine classes that you have. Oh, on, on Lewis Barry Schaefer, on his salvation book. Okay, gotcha. Excellent. All right. Any questions on YouTube? Not yet. All right. We have confirmed that the chat is active and you have to be signed in. Yeah, we did learn that last week too. If you're if you're just browsing YouTube anonymously, then you're not eligible to uh, to chat or to ask a question. So YouTube wants to know who you are. We don't care, but YouTube does. <laughs> All right. Anything else tonight? Taking it easy on me, I see. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> All right. Nothing else on YouTube? All right, we'll call that good then. Join me then in Deuteronomy 13. It's probably good that we have uh, a shorter question time because we have a lot of ground to cover. 13, 14, 15, and uh, part of chapter 16, the first 17 verses there of chapter 16. All right, remember, what is the book of Deuteronomy? The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' five farewell messages. They are at the border. They are getting ready to cross the Jordan. They're on the verge of Joshua's conquest. And it's going to be Joshua's conquest because Moses is about to die. And they've already had the change of command ceremony. They've already had the full public view whereby uh, uh, Joshua was ordained to be Moses' successor. All that's in place. They're ready now to cross and, and conquer the land. But before Moses departs, he delivers five messages. He also sings a song and he also has a Another message at the end, so we'll deal with that. He has a prophetic utterance as he blesses the tribes. We'll see that, especially in a nice parallel with what Jacob did before his death as well, the deathbed blessings that we find in several places through Scripture. So uh, picking up now on where we left it last night, because we got through chapter 12 last night, and chapter 12 begins the, the middle of these, the third of these five farewell messages, and the longest of these five farewell 
messages. In fact, I go back and forth. Sometimes I call them messages. Sometimes I call them discourses. Because as a, as a discourse, you actually have a sequence of messages within a much larger discourse. And uh, I think you'll see as we just bounce from topic to topic to topic that, uh, that Moses is just hitting them hard one thing after another after another after another as, it, uh, as the Holy Spirit lays it upon his heart. So we start the chapter here as the Lord establishes a test by which Israel might identify false prophets. Verses 1 through 5 is this test. And this is going to be key because remember um, we, we have similar warnings in the New Testament about false teachers and whatnot. Uh, but false prophets in, in Israel is a big deal because they are a theocracy and they are subject to uh, the, the word of the Lord coming to a prophet, to a legitimate prophet who speaking as God's spokesman has the authority to overrule a king or overrule a high priest or overrule any uh, tribal prince or anybody else within the nation. And so the idea that, uh, that Satan would send false prophets in to lead God's nation astray is, uh, is not far-fetched. In fact, it's, it should be expected. So let's look at verses 1 through 5 here of Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Remember that it was the, the first commandment, the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Well now here's the, here's the key, because we talk about miracles and how the signs, of a, uh, the signs that God gives, the miracle working that, that become the credentials, they become the, the mark of divine authority. And so when, when you observe the sign, then that should be a, a motivation to listen carefully to what the person is saying. Because if it's coming from the Lord, you're accountable. You've got to live it, you've got to apply it. But listen carefully. Because if it's in defiance of what God has already made clear, then you're dealing with a false prophet. And you have to identify them for what they are as well. So don't listen to the words of a false prophet. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you uh, to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. And by uh, putting the false prophet to death, you're not only purging in the sense of that one particular false prophet, but you're also serving as a deterrent for anybody else that may think about uh, rising up and claiming to be a prophet as well. So the chapter begins with a warning to keep the whole counsel of the Word of God without adding to it or taking away from it. And uh, which really, there's an awkward chapter division there. So what we think of as chapter 12 and verse 32 is actually chapter 13 and verse 1 in the Hebrew. Okay, And so the, the, the chapter division is just one verse off there. That's not unusual or weird in a lot of cases. That's kind of actually normal. Um, the Septuagint though follows, so I guess our English Bible is following the Septuagint versification rather than the Hebrew versification. So yeah, whatever I command you, be careful to do, you shall not add 
uh, nor take away from it. So that's how the chapter begins in the Hebrew text. And then everything else is one verse off between the Hebrew verses and the English verses. All right. So the chapter begins with a warning to keep the whole counsel of the Word of God without adding to it or taking away from it. In addition to the Lord's prophetic servants, the adversary sends forth his own prophetic servants. So just bear in mind, the adversary does not like clear and accurate Bible teaching and he will try to pollute it every chance he can get. The false prophets are permitted by God to accomplish the signs and wonders that they accomplish as a test of Israel's love and devotion to the Lord. And uh, we read that already in verses 2 and 3. But the Lord your God is testing you. And and just keep in mind all the doctrines that we've learned up till now and, and what we've seen already from the book of Job where everything Satan wanted to do he had to get permission first and he had to function within the permissive will of God and within the limitations that God set when he would draw the line in the sand and say you can't cross over that boundary. Likewise, when Moses uh, and uh, Aaron were faced off with uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh had magicians and and wise guys and and those uh, workers of of wonders, and they were doing many of the same miracles. They couldn't do all the miracles, but they did many of the same miracles with satanic power as opposed to the Lord's power. And uh, so keep in mind, that is very real. When we get into the New Testament and the Apostle Paul testifies to the fact that the signs of a true apostle were exhibited among you, keep in mind that that also goes along other warnings that Paul gives when he says that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light and he sends his false apostles out there and they're going to have counterfeit miracles and counterfeit signs and things of that nature as well. So we want to be aware of it. We don't just Uh, We don't just swoon over the gee whiz uh, factor of a miracle. It gets our attention. It certainly does that. It is a sign. It is a wonder. So it has our full attention. But then we listen carefully to make sure that the doctrine being presented is is consistent. And uh, you can believe Yahweh that he would never command you to worship a God other than himself. <laughs> okay, If something just seems to be totally at odds with what we know about God, his nature, his essence, his word, what's been revealed in his word, you know, if a, if a false prophet arises today to tell you that uh, there, there is no rapture, that we're going to go through the tribulation, um, you know that it's wrong. Right, and that's what well, that's why Paul wrote Second uh, Thessalonians, because the false prophets had gone into Thessalonica to convince them that they had missed the rapture, that the the day of the Lord had come upon them. So just stay tuned. The miracles of a true prophet show evidence of the divine commission of the prophet, and also support the message of the true prophet. While the miracles of a false prophet show evidence of the satanic commission of the false prophet because they contradict the message of the Word of God. And that's why we're told to test every spirit and to determine, you know, to hold fast that which is good and to reject every form of evil. All right, then we get to verses 6 through 11. The Lord established a policy by which Israel might deal with such idolatrous invitations the temptations that we face. So let's look at verses 6 through 11. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known. I mean, it's one thing if a prophet comes in from out of town with a lot of flash and a lot of miracles and whatnot, but now this temptation's coming to you from a 
a family member, from a loved one, somebody you trust, someone that uh, if you break fellowship with them, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. Maybe it may not be easy to do. And so someone close to you is enticing you, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known. Of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end. Now ideally, if they're successful in the conquest, then all of the near, uh, the inhabitants of the land are going to be gone. But they're still going to have near neighbors and they're going to have far neighbors and they're going to have, hopefully, missionary work around the globe. They are called to be the covenant nation and to uh, testify to the Lord um, among the Gentile people. Anyway, if now the enticement comes in for you to abandon the Lord and start serving idols, don't do it. The, uh, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. Right? Because this is in violation of the law. In fact, you have a duty to, uh, to report him, to have him put to death. So your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. Afterward, the hand of all the peoples. And remember, to execute the death penalty, you've got to have the two or three witnesses. And, and you have to be willing to be that witness. You have to be willing to, ta- uh, to be the hand of God's uh, justice in this exercise. You shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. And so the deterrent value, just like we saw in the previous paragraph, you are first of all you're removing the wicked man from among yourselves with the immediate idolater, but then also you're hindering future idolaters from even attempting it, from realizing that you know this is this is not going to be tolerated among the covenant nation of Israel. I do think it's significant though where it says uh, that your eye shall not pity him and you can't conceal him because I mean it gets so subjective. And it gets hard to do when it's someone you love. I mean, what if it's, you know, what did it say? The wife whom you cherish? Yes, the wife you cherish or your friend who is as your own soul. That uh, you got to stop and ask yourself, wait a minute, okay? This is open defiance against the Lord God. This cannot stand. So these snares are to be rooted out where they are, uh, when they are secret enhancements before they become open public venues. These snares are to be rooted out when they are individual invitations before they become group movements. Always easier to nip it in the bud, to get it when it's small. Don't let it grow. These snares should highlight the distinction between our spiritual family in Christ and our natural family. Okay, Now that's, this is true New Testament, Old Testament alike. Of course the spiritual family in the Old Testament was not in Christ, but you, you know what I mean when I, when I put that there in the, in the notes. A distinction between the earthly and the heavenly, the, the physical and the spiritual. Our spiritual duties before the Lord and then our natural human duties that, that we have. The proper application of congregational discipline serves as a deterrent against future instances of such evil. And it really does. It feeds itself whichever way you go with it. If you're diligent to love God, if you're diligent to, to not tolerate the idolatry, if you're diligent to root it out and end it, no matter where it is, no matter who it is, if you're absolutely impartial in this and you're consistent with it, then you're going to promote 
uh, with regularity and consistency, you're going to be promoting a, a holy people. You're going, to be, you're going to be promoting that. There's going to be more of that. Everybody's going to be like-minded in that. They're going to see it in action. They're going to know that it's real. On the flip side, if you let things slide, if you're not so diligent about it, if, if you allow for a little bit of leaven to sneak in, then that you're going to get more of it. More and more and more of it. And, uh, and especially if you're showing favoritism, then someone else can point to you and say, well, you're a hypocrite. You didn't put your wife to death. Why are you, you, know, why are you coming down on me? And uh, you've got to realize if you're showing favoritism in this, then the adversary's got a point when he calls you the hypocrite. So those principles, I think, are, are well stated here. All right, well, that gets us through verse 11. Verses 12 and following, down through verse 18, the Lord established a procedure by which Israel might deal um, uh, cities, deal with the cities that degenerate into apostasy. What do you do when a culture is out of control? And I meant to fix that typo and I didn't. Israel might deal with cities that degenerate into apostasy. You know, and, and, and in any nation you're going to have well-run cities and poorly run cities and beyond the earthly matters. Here when we're talking about apostasy and the, and the uh, abandonment of the Word of God, let's take a look at it. Verses 12 through 18. If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. You get the idea we're having the same issue again and again and again. And we've gone from you know, the false prophet that's coming through town uh, and doing the, the works of miracles. Then we're doing with family members on an individual basis. Now we have cities that are out of control. And you have some, uh, some worthless men. Is that some of our uh, son of Belial vocabulary? I forget now. Anyway... They've gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other, other gods. Then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. Okay? You don't just let it go. You don't just say, oh, well, that's, that's San Francisco. What do you expect? Right? Or, oh, well, that's, that's uh, Las Vegas. What do you expect? You know, and, and the minute you start, this is like the same thing about showing favoritism again. The minute you start having different standards, saying, well, you know, they can do what they do, but boy, it better not come here. Wait a minute. You tolerated it there. So why should it not come here? You've already demonstrated that you're, you don't take the, the Lord's commandment seriously. So keep in mind, they're going to be functioning as a tribe. They're going to be, when the land grants are settled, that these nearby cities that you hear about, they don't just sit there in isolation. They're not just, you know, those guys over there. They're a part of your family, they're a part of your clan, they're a part of your tribe, they have some degree of closeness one way or the other, and they need to be dealt with on that basis. We'll talk about that some more too when we get to Achan and his rebellion in the book of Joshua. So, um, you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. Like, uh, you know, Gladys Kravitz figuring out what's going on in the neighborhood. Okay? <laughs> it's, it is... Not, it, yeah, you could think of it as sanctified nosiness, but no, this is the brother's keeper. This is the principle that these tribes are to look after one another and to cut it off as quickly as possible to mitigate the damage. And if it comes to it, if it is true, the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, 
you are to surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it, and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Well, that sounds pretty rough. I mean, does that sound like, you know, the tribe of Judah is going to go to war against one of its own cities? That's what it sounds like, okay? If, they've, if they're abandoning Yahweh, if they're abandoning the Lord, then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of its open square and burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. Nothing from that which is put under the ban shall cling to your hand in order that the Lord may turn from His burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you and make you increase just as He has sworn to your fathers. If you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all His commandments, which I am commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. And so, you know, I've got a lot of questions with respect to this, and it's worth asking, you know, um, do they, are they given a warning? What are the procedures as they investigate? Does part of that investigation include a call to repentance? Does part of that investigation include the, uh, the potential to uh, for that city itself to get itself in order? In other words, to bring out the instigators of the idolatry or to somehow spare the, the entire city? You know, we don't have that level of detail in the, in the text, but I think, I mean, just based on what we know with respect to God's nature and what we know from other passages of Scripture, that when you do such investigations, there's always a, a repentance opportunity. So I would suspect that such a thing happens here. I will also suspect uh, that when you read all the rest of the Old Testament, by the time we're done, uh, what is that, October, when we get to the New Testament? (laughs) Okay. So between now and September, keep your eyes peeled for even one instance of this being applied anywhere in the history of Israel. I don't believe it ever is. I don't believe there's ever a testimony in in the biblical record that this doctrine was ever put into application. Okay? And, and goodness knows there was no shortage of opportunities that could have done that. But um, there's never a testimony that they actually did. We're going to see a few instances. We're going to see a thing where Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin almost goes extinct. We're going to see um, some other uh, issues between the tribes where they're, they're fixing to go to war with each other. But we don't see an exercise whereby a city is identified as being uh, idolatrous and when the tribe itself investigates and, and puts that city under the ban. All right, but the principles still hold true. The liberals will come along and the JEDP people will come along and they, they will they'll look at a text like this and they'll say, well, that can't be original. That, that was never in the original. Or did they ascribe it to a later author or whatever? Um, they look at something that was never done in the history of Israel and then they say, well, it couldn't have been in the original text of Moses or they would have done it at some point. You know, and that's just a hypothetical that they can't prove, but part of their evidence for multiple authors of, of Deuteronomy. It's, it's just garbage, as I've said many times. All right. So the Lord established a procedure by which Israel might deal with cities that degenerate into apostasy. First of all, we understand, and we know this from 2 Timothy 2.17, apostasy does spread like gangrene. Okay, That's why you root it out as early as you can. You want to root it out at the family level if you can. Because in a family it's going to spread to a clan. In a clan it will spread to a city. In a city uh, it will spread to the tribe. 
Apostasy in the scribes spreads to the nation, and I think that pretty clearly becomes the pattern that we see in various places throughout the Old Testament. So the family should stop the problem within the family, and that backs up to the previous paragraph. If you're dealing with it on the individual level, great. Dealing with it on a family basis, great. Dealing with it on a tribal basis, if you have to, why did it get to that point? Once the apostasy spreads to the clan and the city, then the tribe must take the action to stop the apostasy there. At least that's the design as it's given. And I think there's a lot of um, ways that we can take Deuteronomy 13 and we can parallel with things like Matthew 18 and other passages of discipline where you're trying to resolve issues at the lowest possible uh, common denominator if you can. All right, well that gets us through chapter 13. And we got 14, 15, and half of 16 still in front of us. Clean and unclean animals. Moses reminds Israel of their unique relationship to the Lord here in verses 1 and 2. And like I say, this, uh, this just continues on. Uh, Moses is hammering this uh, in, in this farewell message. He's hammering a lot of topics. He's bouncing from one topic to another, to another, to another, just as, it's, as it comes to him. In, uh, in this discourse. So, uh, verses 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. And yeah, the, the things that the pagans would do with their beard styles and their hairstyles and the various tattoos and the various cuttings and and, uh, and other things like that that were part of their priesthoods, part of their idolatrous worship, part of even their uh, divination techniques whereby uh, they would use their own shed blood for different things. Anyway, God says, you are not them, you are mine, you will be holy as I am holy. Uh, great re- reminder of what had previously been given to them in Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. These calls to holiness, these calls to be unique because you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. Right? Of all the gin joints in all the world, uh, of all the world, of all the nations, of all the world, God picked them to be His His holy nation. Leviticus 20 and verse 26 You are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. They're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be unique. We're going to see when they they get through the end of the judges period and they all start looking around and they start saying, oh, well, we need to have a king like all the nations that are around us have kings. And they miss the point. They are not like all the nations around them. They are different from all the nations around them. It's not a problem to be different. Because God has called you to be holy. Moses reminds Israel of their dietary requirements. That's verses 3 through 21. And we, went, we dealt with this extensively in Leviticus 11. But you shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, the mountain sheep, any animal that divides the hoof and has the hoof split in two and chews the cud. Remember, that's the rule of thumb in case new animals come along that they hadn't been exposed to before or they import other animals. Or really, 
What happens when Jewish people start to migrate throughout the world and they start to encounter animals that are not native to, uh, to Israel? They need this rule of thumb. Divide the hoof and chew the cud. That's the basic rule. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among which chew the cud or among those that divide the hoof in two, the camel, the, racket, the rabbit, the shafan, or the rock badger. Uh, though they chew the cud, they do not divide the hoof. They are unclean for you. I think that's the one that's had three different translations from three different versions of the New American Standard Bible. I can put all three editions of the New American Standard Bible in parallel. And we can see that, yeah, the Shafen and then the Rock Badger that was the original 1977 New American Standard Bible. And then the new one, the 2020, cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, 2020 New American Standard Bible calls it a rock hyrax, H-Y-R-A-X, which is an awesome Scrabble word. I like hyrax just for the Scrabble value of it. But um, anyway, just shows you the, all the guesswork that goes into trying to identify some of these animals. Prairie dog, yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, there are some animals, they do have a split hoof. That's great. But they don't chew the cud, so they don't qualify. Or there's other animals that chew the cud, and you think, that's great, but they don't have the split hoof, so they don't qualify. You've got to have both, not or, and. They've got to do both. All right. And then the pig, it does divide the hoof, but it does not chew the cud. It's unclean. Shall not eat any of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses. And then when you get to the water animals... Basic rule of thumb, fins and scales, good to go. No fins and scales, no. Uh, Birds, you can eat any clean bird, but these you shall not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the falcon, the kite in their kinds, every raven in its kind, the ostrich, the owl, the seagull, the hawk, the little owl, the great owl, the white owl. Remember, these Hebrew words are so obscure, and even a lot of the rabbis, and, and they just guess, and they just start calling everything owls just to, uh, I don't know. The pelican, the carrion vulture, the cormorant, the stork, the heron and their kinds, the hoopoe and the bat. All the teeming life with wings are unclean to you. They shall not be eaten. You may eat any clean bird. If it dies of itself, you know, don't find roadkill and go, I mean, just, if you kill it, you may eat it if it's a clean animal. But if you just find it dead, then uh, leave it there. Don't eat it. All right, and you shall not boil the young goat in its mother's milk. We talked about that in Leviticus as well. Moses reminds Israel of the importance of the tithe, verses 22 through 27. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. And keep in mind the tithing procedure in the Old Testament. First of all, it's a feature of Mosaic law, which we are not under. Uh, but it was also a feature of their status as the covenant nation, as a theocratic nation. Not only did it support their temple, but it also supported their nation. It supported their, their charity. It supported the, 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 the poor among them and other things. See, and, if, and for people today that try to put tithing into their church operations, they're missing so much of the point because we're not a theocracy and, and uh, you know, they're blending grace giving with, uh, with taxes and whatever else that we do 
for, uh, for our secular taxes. And that's just crazy. All right, so you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And, and they have to appear three times. On three occasions every year they have to appear before the Lord. And this is the opportunity for them to not only bring their tithe, to bring their offering, but then to eat in His presence and to worship with the Levites and the priests and all the things that go with the, the solemn assembly. It does talk about distances and if the distance is too great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set His name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, sheep, or wine, or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires. There you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. You shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. So there's, these procedures are in place, and it's kind of interesting as we'll get into the, the conquest and the different divisions of the land, but some of them, Issachar and Asher and Naphtali, they were way to the north. Or you get to some of them and the, and the distance to, to go down to Jerusalem. They've got a procedure there where they can, they can spend the cash equivalent, and then they can, uh, they can feast but they also have Levites to take care of in their, in their territory. All right, well we have the uh, importance of the tithe. Remember that there is the normal tithe and then there's the festal tithe. It's a second tithe from the previously re, uh, revealed tithe. Then um, as we've seen, the Lord modifies some of the requirements to reflect the new circumstances in their life as, uh, as they settle in the land. The emphasis is one of celebration. I tell you, celebration. They should be feasting, they should be drinking, they should be celebrating how awesome the Lord is. Here's the festal tithe. It's got different names, but at the end of every third year you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. And so you have the normal annual tithe, but now you've got this, this special one every third year. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, the widow, who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you shall do. So the supplementary tithe, supplementary festal tithe, it's uh, useful for the, uh, for the poor. It's a great provision there. Some of that we looked at in Numbers 18 and verse 21. Every third year the festal tithe went to the community to help support the widows, orphans, aliens, and Levites. Some scholars view the charity tithe as a a third tithe, while most view the charity tithe as being given in lieu of the festal tithe in every third year. And so, yeah, depending on what commentary you're reading and their understanding of it, you may get different opinions on that. All right, which gets us ready for chapter 15. The Sabbath year, at the end of every seven years. Moses reminds Israel that the Sabbath year verses, um, and, and teaches that this year of release is also the year to be for debt forgiveness. 
All right. So at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts. This is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. So there is a redemption process. If you can uh, redeem your brother's uh, property, you can pay off those debts, you can restore the, the land that had been sold. There is the right of the kinsman redeemer to redeem the property. But in the seventh year, you have the release. From a foreigner you may exact it, but your hand shall release whatever of yours is with your brother. However, there be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. Now that's an interesting verse. And I think of a verse that says there will be no poor among you, and I think, wow. But then I can think of what Jesus said when he said, the poor you will have with you always. And, and so you have to take both verses and say, all right, now how, both of these are true. But since the Lord will surely bless you, remember that's contingent upon them obeying the law, uh, walking in the light, serving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And in those cases, it's kind of interesting, there will be no poor among you. And you can think about the abundant provision that's made in the crops and the animals and the, the wealth increase and all the rest. If only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all this commandment which I am commanding you today. You know, it's kind of curious too when you see some of these things. When uh, believers are making right choices according to wisdom, then what's the natural outworking of that? Positive results. You know, you read through the book of Proverbs and you see if you're employing God's wisdom in spiritual life, God's wisdom in your financial life, God's wisdom in your marital life, God's wisdom in all these things, it normally, as a rule, results in positive outcomes. Okay? There can be exceptions, of course. There can be undeserved suffering. There can be seasons of testing and things of that nature. But by and large, Believers that are walking in the light, living the Word of God, are going to uh, be reaping the, the, the grace that God pours forth. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to more of that when we get to the book of Proverbs. Um, I still want to get down through verse 11 here. I haven't, where did I stop? Verse 5. For the Lord your God will bless you as He has promised you, and you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow, and you will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over to you, over you. Remember the 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 borrower is the slave to the lender, and that, that comes out in Proverbs. And you want to you want to be the one that has worked and produced a wealth and produced a surplus, and be in the position to be a lender, to be in the position to be one who blesses others in uh, in these ways. If there is a poor man with you, if there is a poor man with you. One of your brothers in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. And how did he get in those circumstances? And how long did it take him to get in those circumstances? And at what point did, did the work and the accumulation of wealth, and it, where was the malfunction there that caused the, uh, the economic distress to, be, to become such as it is now? And uh, all along those steps along the way, remember there's family, clan, and tribe that should be coming alongside and, and uh, supplying wisdom and grace and everything else. Anyway, you shall freely open your hand to him, you shall generously lend him sufficient for his needs and whatever he lacks. 
And beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of remission is near. Don't get stingy in year six. Don't get to the point where you think, well, my brother needs help, but uh, he's never going to pay it back because he gets uh, he gets everything forgiven next year. Okay? That's a base thought in your heart and get rid of that. The seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you. It'll be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. You know, when you give generously expecting nothing in return and then when you get nothing in return and you still have a generous spirit and love the Lord for allowing you to be the, the provision of grace, uh, there are rewards for that as well. And, and don't, uh, don't feel like you've lost anything. that You never lose in a grace procedure. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Oh, there you go. The, the, I think Jesus might have been quoting that. The poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you saying you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and to the poor in your land. And it's not going to be the same poor guy year after year, but there's going to be somebody next year. There's going to be somebody the year after that. There's going to be somebody the year after that. Guarantee that in every sixth year in that seven year stretch somebody's going to be struggling. Okay? And if you have the opportunity to come alongside, if it's your family, your clan, your tribe, whatever the case may be, and you have the opportunity to do that, then that's God's test of your grace. And uh, don't, uh, don't fail that test. Anyway, there's more on this if you want. Uh, the doctrine of the Sabbath year was first presented back in Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. And you can go uh, review those verses and those notes that we've already covered. Also Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7. You can review those verses and those notes that we've already covered. Remember, this is here for reinforcement. And, and why does it? Why does the, the Bible get written this way? See, we know why Moses is reviewing this, because it's a new generation and they have to learn what their parents didn't learn. But beyond that, we know why Moses is preaching it. Why is it recorded in the canon of Scripture? Why is the Bible so redundant? Why does the Bible put these things in over and over and over again? How come it's in Exodus and it's in Leviticus and it's in Numbers? Because that's how we learn through the repetition, through the reinforcement, through the comparing and contrasting. And, the, and if we get it enough times, maybe it'll sink in, in, uh, in the, the way that we think and the way that we grow. All right, verses 12 through 18. Moses reminds Israel of the unique position that fellow Hebrews enjoy even if they are forced to become slaves for a short time. Remember the bankruptcy proceedings in the ancient world very often included slavery. When you were just belly up and and there was no way out, slavery was a very real option. And and parents would sell their children, uh, that it was very common. And then a man would sell himself uh, if, if he had nothing left. This was common in the ancient world. And so among Israel now, among the covenant nation, they had parameters in place uh, legislated by Mosaic law so that they weren't victimized and abused the way that would work in Babylon or Egypt or Greece or somewhere else if uh, someone was sold into debt slavery in those particular cultures. So verses 12 through 18. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years. But in the seventh year you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed, but you shall furnish him liberally. This is where it's good to be a liberal. 
okay? But notice, from your own flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine vat, you shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. If you want to be a biblical liberal, that means you're the one that's giving your stuff away, okay? There's other kinds of liberals in the world today that they, they want to be liberal with other people's stuff instead of your stuff. All right. So yes, you shall furnish him liberally from your flock as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this today. It shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you. Now something may happen over the course of that slavery service. Something may actually happen and it may happen and may develop and it's called love. So how could that possibly happen? Well, it's interesting. Okay. How do they function before the slavery started in terms of their families and their clans and their tribes and how are they functioning now in a slavery relationship? He says this is actually better. I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you. He may determine that moving forward lifelong slavery is preferable to returning back to the status of how it was before. Then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door. Ouch. (laughs) That just sounds painful. And he shall be your servant forever. Also, you shall do likewise to your maidservant. It shall not seem hard to you when you set him free, for he has given you six years with double the service of a hired man, so the Lord your God will bless you in whatever you do. All right, so these are the the procedures. And this, uh, similar to what we already saw in Exodus 21, what we saw in Leviticus 25, but the opportunity to be a lifelong slave was presented here as it may be desirable in, in many cases. And maybe that someone would choose to do this. Um, I also, beyond the literal historical realities of this in their culture, I also enjoy using this passage when I teach Romans 6 and Romans 7 and principles of sin that we uh, struggle with in the church age because we understand that sin is spoken of as a slavery principle and that before we were saved we were slaves to sin but Jesus sets us free from the from the slave market of sin and we are we are made free in our new position in Christ but sadly how many Christians are there like all of us who on certain occasions we decide that we like our old master. We love our old master. We want to go back and serve our old master. And it's almost like as vivid as it would be to, to pierce the, the ear with the all. You know, when, when you submit to your sin nature, you become a slave to the one that you submit in terms of obedience, either to the Holy Spirit or to the flesh. And, uh, I, and to me, this, this, uh, the vividness of this passage, I think, speaks in a lot of ways to our, our sin struggles in the, in the New Testament. So uh, just think about that as well. Finally, the final verses of chapter 15, when we look at verses 19 through 23, Moses reminds Israel of the importance to consecrate the firstborn of their flocks and their herds. You shall consecrate, that means set it apart, dedicated, it is holy. To the Lord your God, all the firstborn males that are born of your herd and of your flock, you shall not work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. 
Okay, it's the firstborn. You're going to learn the doctrine of the firstborn. The animal ritual is designed to teach you the doctrine of the firstborn. Why is it significant? You and your household shall eat it every year before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. But if it has a defect such as lameness or blindness or any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it as a gazelle or as a deer. Only you shall not eat his blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. So the blessings there. Reminders of what we've seen already in Exodus 13, verses 2 and 12. All right, so the firstborn principle is very important. You take it, you offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice. You get to eat it together. It becomes a fellowship opportunity with the priests and with the Levites. If it happens to be lame or marred in some way with a blemish and whatnot, well then, all right, it's no longer acceptable as a sacrifice. So you have the, the, the doctrine of the firstborn you're trying to uphold, but you also have the doctrine of spotless and blameless that you're trying to uphold. And if you can't do both, then you don't do either. Okay, You just butcher the thing, you eat it, and there you go. All right, and we still need to cover, we have seven minutes left, we have a few verses here of verse. We've got to get down through verse 17 here. And then we will continue chapter 16 tomorrow. All right. Moses reminds Israel of the Lord's, of the Lord's instructions regarding the Passover. So the first eight verses of this chapter are a reminder concerning the Passover. And how many times have we seen this? Now, because we not only we have the first Passover in Exodus 12, but we also had the Passover a year later when they had finished building the tabernacle and as they were getting ready to send out to set out from Sinai, they had to observe Passover again. They're going to have another Passover. Of course, they've had 40 of them in all these years going by, but they're going to have another one explicitly mentioned when they cross the Jordan River and they enter into uh, to begin their conquest. So here's these eight verses. Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. The months have different names. Sometimes we call them, uh, this would be the month Nisan. That's a month that they get later from the Babylonians. But here it's called the month Abib. It's the first month of the year. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock of the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to establish His name. A reminder that once they settle the land, there's going to be a special place. And He'll make it known when they get there. You'll know it when, when He takes you there. And right away, they don't know. When they first settle the land, Shiloh is the location that they just park the, the, the tent and they set it up and it stays in Shiloh for years and years until God makes it very clear that Shiloh is not the place, not the eternal place. Anyway, you shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with it unleavened, the bread of affliction, for you came out of Egypt in haste, that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. For seven days no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. None of the flesh which you sacrifice on the evening of the first day shall remain overnight until morning. No leftovers for Passover. You eat it all that night. You're not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish His name, you shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset at the time that you came out of Egypt. You shall cook it and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. In the morning you are to return to your tents. 
Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. All right, so that's the reminder about the Passover. They also got a reminder about the Feast of Weeks, what we call Pentecost. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants, the Levite who is in your town and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst and in the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe all these statutes. All right, so that's the quick recap that comes in verses 9 through 12. If you want more on that, Leviticus 23 verses 15 through 21, also Numbers 28, verses 26 through 31. Moses reminds Israel of the Lord's instructions regarding the Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 15. This one is one in the fall. This one comes in the seventh month. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. I mean, you notice these these phrases keep being used again and again and again to show you that your family is bigger than you think. That as you love your neighbor, your neighbor includes these Levites and strangers and aliens and widows and orphans and, and all the rest. Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. That's the quick version for this farewell sermon that Moses is preaching. The longer text comes in Leviticus 23. Finally, Moses reminds Israel of the Lord's instructions regarding the three times each year that every male was required to appear before the Lord. Part of the, um, you know, the 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 male privilege, right? The toxic masculinity or the <laughs> raging against the patriarchy? All right, here we go. Three times in a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which He chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Booths, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessings of the Lord your God which He has given you. All right, so we have that. That's where we're going to stop for tonight. The review on that, you can go back if you want, look at Exodus 23 and verses 14 through 17, and you have the first time that they were told about three national feasts. All right, well that gets us to the end. We'll pick up here with the rest of chapter uh, 16 tomorrow night, and uh, Lord willing and rapture pending, of course. You know, if the trumpet does sound and we get raptured up to the clouds in the twinkling of an eye, um, is there going to be a part of me that says, wait, Lord? No, not really. All right, so that's where we are. Day 77 is what we cover tonight. We have six more sessions in Deuteronomy. And that actually finishes era two. After we finish Era 2, 
six more classes in Deuteronomy, then uh, day 84 is our introduction to era number three. And this takes us from the conquest, including the conquest, and uh, the time of the judges and gets us ready for the, uh, the first king. So era three is going to include Joshua, Judges, and, uh, and Ruth, also about seven chapters or so of First Samuel. So that's how close we are to wrapping up era number two. Cool beans. All right. Father, I thank you for this night. I thank you for the diligence of these students. I thank you for everyone here at Austin Bible Church as well as those that are watching remotely around the country and around the world. Father, uh, we just thank you for brothers and sisters that have made daily scripture reading a priority. And as we study each day and as we study to show ourselves approved, I thank you that we can read together as a congregation and we can provide study notes and we can learn together the, uh, the big picture of your truth. We give you the praise and the glory, Father. We give you thanks in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.